very strong or lasting impression on her, and when we came back to England, after more than two years of absence, Mrs. Norcross was still a widow, and showed no signs of wanting to change her condition. We went to the house of the Yorkshire estate first, but my mistress did not fancy some of the company round about, so we moved again to Derrick Hall had made excursions from time to time in the Lake District some miles off. On one of these trips, Mrs. Norcross met some old friends who introduced her to a gentleman of their party bearing the very common and very uninteresting name of Mr. James Smith. He was a tall, fine young man enough with black hair, which grew very long, and the biggest bushiest pair of black whiskers I ever saw. Although he had a rakish, unsettled look and a bounceable way of talking which made him the prominent person in company. He was poor enough himself, as I heard from his servant, but well-connected, a gentleman by birth and education, though his manners were so free. What my mistress saw to like him, I don't know. But when she asked your friends to stay with her at Derrick, she included Mr. James Smith in the invitation. We had a fine, gay, noisy time of it at the hall, the strange gentleman in particular making himself as much at home as if the place belonged to him. I was surprised at Mrs. Norcross putting up with him as she did, but I was fairly thunderstruck some months afterwards when I heard that she and her free and easy visitor were actually going to be married. She had refused offers by dozens abroad, from higher and richer and better-behaved men. It seemed next to impossible that she could seriously think of throwing herself away upon such a hair-brained, headlong, penniless young gentleman as Mr. James Smith. Married, nevertheless, they were in due course of time, and after spending the honeymoon abroad, they came back to Derrick Hall. I soon found that my new master had a variable temper. There were some days when he was as easy and familiar and pleasant with the servants as any gentleman need be. At other times, some devil within him seemed to get possession of his whole nature. He flew into violent passions and took wrong ideas into his head, which no reasoning or remonstrance could remove. It rather amazed me, considering how gay he was in his tastes and how restless his habits were, that he should consent to live at such a quiet, dull place as Derrick. The reason for this, however, soon came out. Mr. James Smith was not much of a sportsman. He cared nothing for indoor amusements, such as reading, music, and so forth, and had no ambition for representing the county in Parliament. The one pursuit he was really fond of was yachting. Derrick was within sixteen miles of a seaport town with an excellent harbor and to this accident of position the hall was entirely indebted for recommending itself as a place of residence to Mr. James Smith. He had such an untiring enjoyment and delight in cruising about at sea, 
and all his ideas of pleasure seemed to be so closely connected with his remembrance of the sailing trips he had taken on board different yachts belonging to his friends, that I verily believe his chief object in marrying my mistress was to get the command of money enough to keep a vessel for himself. Be that as it may, it is certain that he prevailed on her, some time after their marriage, to make him a present of a fine schooner yacht, which was brought round from Cowes to our coast town and kept always waiting ready for him in the harbor. His wife required some little persuasion before she could make up her mind to let him have the vessel. She suffered so much from seasickness that pleasure sailing was out of the question for her. And being very fond of her husband, she was naturally unwilling that he should engage in an amusement which took him away from her. However, Mr. James Smith used his influence over her cleverly, promising that he would never go away without first.